Few men outside of the Lord Jesus Himself have had such an impact on the history of the world as did the man introduced to us in Genesis, the twelfth chapter. Abraham is revered by both Muslims and Jews who represent just under one quarter of the world's population today. Each group actually considers Abraham to be the father of their nation, with Abraham's firstborn son Ishmael, the progenitor of the Arab nations, and Abraham's second son Isaac, the progenitor of the Jewish nations. And the ancient conflict between these two brothers from different mothers has been raging for over 4,000 years and is in the headlines almost daily in the 21st century. And I say all this because some people have the idea that the Bible is unrelated to life in the now. That is so not true. Biblical history in the book of Genesis provides the answers to a lot of questions in our daily lives in 2013. But our purpose this morning is not to draw a straight line between Abraham's divided household and the conflict in the Middle East. Instead, instead we want to become more familiar with the circumstances that caused the name of Jesus to be whispered by God. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, generations before He was even born, and what that whispered name has meant to the nations of the world and what it can mean to the nations of the world. Let me set the stage by telling you a little about Abraham. There was a time in the distant past when Abram, as he was called before God changed his name, Abram was a nobody, just another nameless face in a sea of humanity. His home was in the land of Ur which is located in what we call Iraq today, where the Euphrates River dumps into the Persian Gulf. You can see it there. Ur was a bustling seaport. It was a center of intellectual activity. In recent years, they have archaeologists have found a public library that contained thousands of ancient writings. Ur was a very prosperous area. And as is often the case when people prosper, there was also perversion in Ur. The people of that region were involved in the most dehumanizing forms of idolatry known to mankind. And while Abram was able to disassociate from the idolatry and the immorality in his homeland, his relatives were not. His father, Terah, was an idol worshiper. His nephew, Lot, was lured by big city life in Sodom. And that did not go well for Lot and his family. So the years in Ur were a season of despair for Abram. And yet, we serve a God who can reach into the darkest heart and turn on the light of His presence. He can take an obscure man in a corrupt place and bring him into a season of joy and peace in his life. He can take a hopeless life and transform it into one of the great examples of faith and spiritual leadership. Well, let's get to the text of Scripture to see what it was that started this chain of events that has so blessed our life on this earth. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. 
the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through your lineage. Did you hear it? God once again whispered the name of Jesus. And we're not told exactly why this call of God came to Abram, but he was chosen by God to leave the region of Ur behind, everything familiar to him, everything that represented security, everything that had shaped his life to that point, and he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, even though at the time he had no idea where that was. His call was to a new life path. It was to new priorities. His call was to follow a new Lord. It was a call for total commitment, and there's a, a lesson for us here, for each of us. Because God calls you and me to come out of Ur, to leave, to leave the old life, to leave the world and begin a new life of faith, a life lived in close relationship with the one true and living God, a life of dependence on Him to meet our deepest needs, to meet our daily needs. It's an invitation to answer His call regardless of what it costs regardless of where it leads, regardless of how much it hurts. So what has the Lord clearly directed you to do that you maybe haven't done yet? I'm asking you this morning if your obedience is up to date. Now, I know that not all of God's commands are easy to obey. Some are a little scary. Some are costly. But if we trust that His way is the best way for us, if we believe that God's way is the way we really want to go in life. We'll walk by faith just like Abraham did. One little rabbit trail I want to chase here this morning. I may be speculating some, but I think there's pretty good evidence that Abram stayed in Haran until his father, Terah, died. Abram lingered in Haran until he was 75 years old. Now, we don't know at what time he received this promise that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're not sure how old he was, but he, wasn't, he did not leave Haran until he was 75. I think he delayed his obedience. I think he wasted valuable years. I think his father might have been the reason. I think his father might have kept Abram from moving out immediately. His father, Terah. So what might be your Terah? Is there something holding you back? from the urgency of conforming your life to God's best. Abram wasted valuable time waiting for his father to die, being grieved by the sins of his family. But God was patient with Abram when he thought things were squared away and he moved out at the age of 75. Abram made his break with the old life to launch his new adventure of faith. But then another 24 years passed until the Lord renewed His promise to Abram. He was 99. So he actually left at 75, and 
God renewed his promise to Abram when he was 99. He's going to make of him a great nation, and he's 99 years old, and he doesn't have any children. So why this 24-year delay before God renewed his promise to Abram? Well, I think, I think it was Abram's delayed obedience that caused God to delay in fulfilling his promise. Do you realize that Abram was the one who delayed God's blessing on his life while he decided when he was ready to obey? Likewise, we can be the ones who limit God's blessing in our lives. We can be the ones who postpone His blessing in our lives because of our reluctance or our tardiness in obeying. Valuable years get wasted. I think they did for Abram. I think they can for us. But look at Genesis 17, 4 and 5. God renewed His promise to Abram, saying, This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you call, be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I've made you the father of many nations. And that's what the name Abraham means. It means the father of many nations. Of course, Abraham would not live to see the ultimate outcome of God's covenant. He was the father of the nation Israel, from which would come the Messiah, the Savior, and it's Jesus who is the blesser of all the nations in the world. So what is the evidence of that blessing? I'm so glad you asked. Because it seems to me too often people want to argue about Christianity or they want to find fault in some Christian or they want to criticize the church instead of being amazed by Jesus Christ. John Ortberg, in his book, Who is This Man?, identifies a whole range of ways that Jesus has blessed the nations of the world. And I have supplemented his list to come up with ten. And the first one is this. Jesus has blessed the nations with a unified system of marking time. Jesus is the hinge of history, friends. Every nation, every ruler in the world, before or after Him, is dated by the words, before Christ, B.C., or A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Secondly, Jesus has blessed the nations with their most influential movement, where before the church of Christ was there a movement that includes every person and every nation in the entire world in one transformational community, only in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.11 says, here, that is, in the Christian community, in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Thirdly, Jesus has blessed the nations with compassion for children. Children, children would be thought of differently because of Jesus. Historian O.M. Blake's book, When Children Became People, in that book, he noted that in the ancient world, children did usually not get named until the eighth day or so. Up until then, there was a chance that the infant would not thrive or 
that the infant would be intentionally killed or left to die, particularly if it were deformed or of the unpreferred gender. And this custom changed because of a group of people who remembered that they were followers of Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. And Jesus has blessed the nations with compassion for the weak and the infirm. Listen, the Roman Empire worshiped physical beauty and strength. Does that sound familiar? The Roman Empire had little tolerance for the malformed or the diseased or the enslaved until a teacher arose who said, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. And the idea emerged that the suffering of every single individual human being matters. And those who are able to help ought to do so. And hospitals and relief efforts of all kinds came from the teaching. And we're reminded everywhere we turn today, Deaconess Hospital, St. Mary's Hospital, Blessing Hospital, St. John's Hospital, Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, Christ Memorial, Baptist Hospital, Good Samaritan, Holy Cross, St. Joseph's Mercy Hospital, World Vision, the YMCA, the Red Cross. If you have any institution that gives to the needy without receiving anything in return, it most likely has its roots in the Christian faith. And the eradication of slavery and the establishment of civil rights, that is the result of the conviction and the persistence of Christian leaders. And Jesus has blessed the nations with education. Jesus never wrote a book. But his command to love God with your mind ignited an age of enlightenment. Did you know that clocks were originated so Christians would know when to pray? Glasses were invented by Christians to be able to read the Bible. The printing press was invented to duplicate Scripture. The first efforts in most every language to produce characters, to be able to write it down and read it, were by Christian missionaries. 92% of all colleges and universities started in the United States before the Civil War started in the name of Jesus, including the big three, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And education, contemporary education, has become a sort of Judas in many places. There are many people who live with the benefits of what Jesus did to bless the nations. They don't give Him any credit. They don't give Him any thanks with their lips or with their lives. Jesus has blessed our nation, our nations, the nations of the world with respect for women. Although He never married, his treatment of women led to the formation of a community that was so respectful and considerate of women that they would join it in record numbers. In fact, the church was and is to date disparaged by some because of its attractiveness to women and children and the elderly. What a shame. It was Jesus' teaching about equality in God's sight that led to the disillusion of sexual discrimination that was previously encoded in Roman law. And Jesus blessed the nations with art. The works of Italian literature by Dante 
Handel's Messiah, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. The most valued art in the world is the art that captures the scenes of sacred Scripture, all inspired by the carpenter of Nazareth. And did you know that music notation originated with worshipers of God? And Jesus has blessed the nations of the world politically. The ancient world assumed that the state should rule over religion. But from the time of Augustine to Martin Luther, there was the conviction that the state had to answer to a higher authority. In Jesus' statement, my kingdom is not of this world, lets us know that there is a higher accountability of governmental leaders to an all-powerful and righteous judge in heaven. And our present government and our present societies return to the ancient political notion of marginalizing or driving biblical Christianity from the culture will take us to places that we do not want to go. And Jesus has blessed the nations by teaching love for enemies. He taught forgiveness. And the teaching of Jesus to forgive undoubtedly has saved countless lives, prevented countless lawsuits, countless acts of retaliation. Genghis Khan said, conquer your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. And during the persecution by Nero, who practiced the mass genocide of Christians, they did not fight back. They loved and they witnessed, and Nero died. And Rome was transformed by the grace of God into a stronghold of Christianity. Jesus has blessed the nations with unity. He gets people together who are very different. Look at the otherwise incompatible people that Jesus brings together. Jesse Jackson, Jerry Falwell, Billy Sunday, Bill Shakespeare, Thomas Akempis, Thomas Kincaid, Billy Graham, Bill Clinton, Bono and Bach, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Jim Baker, Jim Dobson, Beverly Sills, George Beverly Shea, George Washington, Denzel Washington, Constantine and Charlemagne, Sarah Palin and Jimmy Carter. Now, I am not vouching for the faith of all of those people that I mentioned right then, but they all, they all claim some kind of belief in or devotion to Jesus. H.G. Wells marveled that after 2,000 years, after 2,000 years, he writes, an historian like myself who doesn't even call himself a Christian finds the picture centering irresistibly, irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave behind to grow? Did he start men thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? Here's what H.G. Wells, an unbeliever, says by this test. Jesus stands first. I appreciate His objectivity. And the name of Jesus 
whispered in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he said, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It was fulfilled in the first few words in the first of the four Gospels, Matthew 1, 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And Jesus was the blesser of nations. Now... And then, here and near and far away. So why then do we have the names of 7,000 people groups displayed on these banners in the front and in the atrium in the back? It's because there are places where His name is still basically unknown. And we are not content to keep the good news of the gospel to ourselves. These places represent persons, just like you and me, and family groups, just like yours and just like mine. So we got to go to the places where we can, and we've got to send people who are willing and able to, to go to the places that we cannot. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God instructed Abraham to go, to get up, to get out, to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to leave the world, to leave Haran, to leave behind his delayed obedience. Go to the place I will show you. And he's told us to do the same thing in the Great Commission. Go into all the world. And it's a world full of people that our Father loves, people that need to know the truth that is in His Son and be saved. And the early church responded. And as a result of their boldness, 3,000 were baptized in a day in Jerusalem. And then persecution came, and the early Christians went everywhere preaching the Word. And Peter spoke from the porch, and he went up and knocked on the door of a foreigner's house, and Philip jumped into the chariot with a total stranger, and Stephen spoke to a hostile assembly, and Paul testified in a prison cell and in open court and while chained to a guard. But somewhere along the line, the church lost track of her purpose, and we became prosperous. We settled in. We huddled up, we slowed down, we took it easy, we got comfortable. We became more concerned about saving face than saving souls. We became organized, systematized, anesthetized. It's a rare occasion today when some Christians even think about the missionary task, let alone engage in it. Missionaries are out of sight, out of mind. But the heart of God continues to beat for the nations of the world. He's still saying, get up, go, get out, get going, don't delay, obey. And maybe the best response that you can make this morning is to renew yourself in faithfulness to this missionary-minded church. Or maybe you can give generously to missions, or maybe you can answer a call to full-time work. Many in our church have. Have you noticed the last few months how many of our church families we have sent out to different places in the world? Maybe you could take a mission trip, and it would 
it would enlarge your missionary heart. You would never see the world the same way again. Scores of crossroads people have done that. But one thing every one of us could do is to spend a few moments this morning either in the atrium or here at the front of the worship center and write down the name of just one of these people groups or get on that website that Todd told us about earlier that will bring up a different people group for you to pray for each day. Determine that you and your family will intentionally pray for one people group. You could, you could take the name of this people group and go online and learn about that nation and pray for these people. It would captivate your children. It would put a missionary heart in them. Maybe you can take the opportunity to befriend a missionary family. I don't know how you might express a missionary heart but there are lots of ways. Listen, friends, there will come a day. There will come a day when there will be this huge assembly that is going to make Times Square on New Year's Eve look like a small group by comparison. Let me read to you about it. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. I looked, said John the Revelator. I looked, and there before me was a great number that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Two simple challenges I want to leave you with this morning. Here's the first one. Get right with God and get in the family of God. Here's my second one. Help everyone else you can in whatever way you can. Get right with God and get into the family of God.